Hi everyone, Wynn Claybaugh here. This next interview features a remarkable young woman who was once labeled the world's ugliest woman on a YouTube video that gathered over 4 million views. As she shared her story about fighting back, the four goals that carried her forward, and what her parents taught her about fitting in and handling problems, Lizzie had me laughing, crying, and left me with the feeling that I could conquer the world. If you enjoy this interview as much as I did and want your friends to benefit from this remarkable young woman's wisdom, please take a minute to rate it, comment, and share it with your friends. And be sure to subscribe on www.masterspodcastclub.com to receive information about new podcasts and other news. Now, please enjoy one of my all-time favorite authors and motivational speakers, Lizzie Velasquez. Hi, everybody. Wynn Claybaugh here, and welcome to this incredible, incredible issue of Masters. Everything happens for a reason. I probably say that on every issue that I do, but you know, when I do my research, and I'm always doing research because I'm always looking for people who inspire me and who inspire the masses, I'm always looking for people who have a story to tell. I truly believe that the best teachers, the best motivators are storytellers, and when they have a story to tell and then they take their story and they apply it to human life and they apply it to the things that we all go through day after day and the struggles and the victories. And I mean, those to me are just such wonderful mentors and they absolutely deserve our time and our attention. And that's what Masters is all about. And today I get to feature this incredible woman named Lizzie Velasquez. Did I say your name right? Your last name? You did. You said it right. Velasquez. Velasquez. Yeah. Are you Latina? Yeah. Do you speak Spanish? No. Oh. (laughs) I, so I speak my better fam- Spanish than you do. Probably. My family speaks it, but we never spoke it at our house. <laughs> That's right. Well, um, this is very interesting, and I, I absolutely invite you to Google Lizzie and to learn more about her. Go to her website. Subscribe to her YouTube page so you can learn more about her. But Lizzie is one of only three known people in the world with a medical syndrome that doesn't allow her to gain weight or create muscles. So at age 23... Lizzie weighs about 60 pounds. Wait, you're not 23. You're 25, aren't you? 24. 24. Okay, so my bio is a little bit old here. But you have 0% body fat. Uh, You're also blind in one eye, have limited vision in the other eye. And uh, with an internet video, and I don't want to give your story away, but I'll set it up here. There was an internet video called Calling Lizzie the Ugliest Woman in the World. And uh, it went viral. And when you saw that, uh, and you'll tell your story, you basically set out to discover what truly makes people beautiful. And so I'm just so thrilled to share your story here. I had the honor of having Lizzie come in and speak to the leaders of my organization uh, yesterday. And the second she finished, there was a huge, huge line. Uh, People wanting to meet her, wanting to buy her book, wanting to connect with her wanting to get their photo taken with her, and I see why that is. You know, you, you draw people in with your, your heart and with your humor and with your story, 
and with your passion and there's so many other things that that make you absolutely beautiful on the inside and the outside and thank you so much for being here today thanks for having me so lizzie tell us your story oh and by the way you've been on the today show you've been on inside edition you've been on dr drew and so you know you're out there oh and by the way you're also a Uh, just graduated as a communications major at Texas State University in San Marcos. So, uh, you know, you got all kinds of things going on here, sweetheart. (laughs) So tell us your story. Well, I was born with a very rare syndrome that is to this day still undiagnosed. We have no idea how I got it, why I got it. Um, We know for sure it's not genetic. So I didn't get it from either of my parents or relatives or anything, which makes it even crazier. Mm -hmm. But basically, I just can't gain weight. I could eat whatever I want, whenever I want, and I just can't keep the pounds on. So obviously, did your parents know about this before you were born, or was it at birth that all of a sudden here's this surprise? Yeah, uh, they did an ultrasound and realized that I had stopped growing. A couple, I think I want to say maybe like six weeks early. And so my mom had to have an emergency C-section. And they didn't know like what to expect or like have anything to prepare my parents with. So it was kind of just once I was born, they, I don't even know how to explain it. Because they didn't have medical books that they can look in and say, she has these characteristics, so this is what she has. They were just kind of assuming because I only weighed two pounds, 10 ounces, that I was going to kind of be handicapped the rest of my life. Is that what the doctors told your parents? Yeah, they prepared my parents to not expect me to walk or talk or do anything on my own. Uh, They told them they were going to have to take care of me the rest of my life. That's the news that they gave your parents? The first news, yeah. And they didn't even let my mom see me when I was born. The first way she saw me was through a Polaroid picture that they took of me in the nursery, I guess. But they were scared that she was going to be afraid when she saw me or not know how to react. Wow. So what was your parents' reaction to all of it? They said, just let us know what to do. We are going to take her home and love her and raise her as best as we can. And tell us the story after that then. How how did they raise you? I had a completely normal childhood, 100% normal. I honestly, I didn't know that I was different or had a syndrome or anything like that until I started kindergarten. They just had to be careful because I have a really weak immune system. And so I got sick a lot when I was younger. And I think that's kind of the only difference that they had, Mm -hmm. but otherwise everything was normal. And you you have siblings too, younger than you. Yes. I have an 18 year old sister and a 15 year old brother. Okay. The doctors actually told my parents that they shouldn't have any more kids because there was a high risk that they would either have the syndrome that I have or have something worse. And my parents said, it's God's will and whatever we have, we're going to love them. And so they decided to have another one and along came my sister. (laughs) I hope your parents aren't listening to doctors anymore because they haven't gotten very good advice. My mom and I are like a team with doctors now. So if there's doctors that come in the room and automatically say, now, what eating disorder do you have? Or look at my mom and say, why don't you feed your daughter? Whenever that happens, I my mom already knows I'm not going to talk to them <laughs> the rest of the appointment. They still do that? To yeah, this day. it still happens. If I get sick and go to an emergency room or a doctor after hours that doesn't know me, they still do that. Wow. 
Well, so then obviously something changed when you hit kindergarten. So prior to that, you were accepted, you were loved. Yeah. Nobody gave you any indication that you weren't anything but normal like everybody else. Right. My mom stopped working once she had me. She worked at a daycare. And she stopped working to stay home with me. My dad was a new teacher at the time. And in order to kind of raise me normally, my mom started watching one of my cousins and one of my now best friends. And the three of us were always together. And I think that played a huge part in raising me with a normal childhood because they were with me. Now, I read or heard a story of how things change once you hit kindergarten. Can you share that with us? Yeah, I was really, really excited to start school. Um, granted, I was a five-year-old. I really didn't know like much about anything. But before I started school, my parents never sat me down and said, be prepared for other kids to pick on you or not like you or anything like that. They just encouraged me that it was going to be a lot of fun. And so I went in on the first day really excited and thinking I was going to make new friends and color and play all day. And a lot of kids were very hesitant to have anything to do with me, to play with me, to stand by me, to sit by me, which looking back now, I understand because kids have no filter. But unfortunately for me, I had to learn the hard way about that. So how long do you remember that lasting was it just through kindergarten or no, did it? it did... was all through elementary school. But I think once I got older, I started making a lot of friends and I was becoming more aware of the fact that I had the syndrome. And I was so determined to just be myself and make the best of it. And so that's what I did. But yeah, it happened all throughout elementary school. So at some point, did your parents have to sit down and, and kind of give you some coaching and say, okay, here's what's going on and here's maybe why these kids are treating you this way? Or did they give you other guidelines on how to deal with it? Yeah, they handle it, I think, in probably the best way possible. Right. And when we were at home, they would always encourage me to just be myself and I would eventually show the other kids that I'm just like them. But once I got older, I would say probably around starting in second or third grade, on the first day of school, since my dad taught at the same school, my dad would go to my class during the first week of school, and I would stand up in front of the whole class, and my dad would introduce me to them, and we would explain that what my situation was and that I ha had the syndrome, but I'm just like them. And once we started doing that and having the routine of doing that each year, it helps so much. So it's just a matter of educating people. Right, right, and just letting them know that Yes, Lizzie does look different, and she's smaller than you guys, but she's just like you. I mean, we've only known each other for a very short period of time, but I've seen you in action, and uh, you don't seem like you're shy. You don't seem like you're hesitant. You don't seem like you're anything other than you're going to go out and conquer the world and show them you know, exactly who you are and what you have to offer. At what point did that start for you? Because it did change for you in high school, correct? Yeah, it was definitely a process. I It wasn't ever something that I woke up one morning and it was like turning on a light switch and I was so proud and confident of who I am. I think I credit a lot of it to my parents because they were just instilled in me to just be myself and be confident. And it's kind of the thing that it's all I knew. It's all I knew was to be myself. And eventually, once I got older... 
I kind of went into, I don't want to say a depression, but a point where I just was tired of taking my medicine. I was tired of being stared at. I was angry that I couldn't go to a theme park without people stopping and staring at me and making me feel uncomfortable. But I started realizing that I'm the one that's in charge. I'm the one who's either going to make the best of my life or I'm just going to let it win, let the syndrome win, basically. And I started realizing that when I was born, my parents were more than willing to make the best out of the situation. So I knew that that's what I had to do. Otherwise, I would live the rest of my life being unhappy. So probably had your parents thought, this is a crisis, this is terrible, why us, why did this happen to us? Mm -hmm. They would have passed that on to you, and you would have grown up the same way. Why me? Exactly, yeah. Did your parents ever allow you to have that feeling or that little pity party of (laughs) why me? They did, they did, but it was only for a very, very short amount of time. Meaning what? Because I heard you share that story or that rule that your parents have. I could only, if I was upset about something... Or having a hard time, I was only allowed to cry once and get it out of my system. And once I got it out of my system, I had to look at the positive side. And one of the things that my mom would always tell me, and she still tells me to this day whenever I'm sick, you can be sick and rest for a few days, but after that, I'm not playing nice nurse anymore. (laughs) You have to get up and start taking care of yourself and do your hair and put on makeup and you'll feel better. <laughs> so so the rule of you get to cry once, that, that wasn't just applied to your syndrome. That right. would apply to, you know, friend problems or homework problems. Yeah, or it anything. applied to anything. And for the longest, I thought that was the stupidest rule. And I was so annoyed. And I remember just saying, just let me cry. Let me feel bad for myself. And they never let me do it. So obviously your two younger siblings have the same rule. Oh, yeah. And they had to grow up that way, too. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's good (laughs) that I had both of them because they do not cut me any slack. I sometimes pull the help me, I'm little card with my family. And <laughs> what does that look like? What do you mean? Like, like carry my luggage? Well, or, you know, like or... if I'm watching TV and I'm like, can you give me that over there, please? They're like, there's nothing wrong with your legs. You can get up and get it yourself. Oh, my God. <laughs> Gee, thanks. <laughs> I know. Thanks a lot. And they always say, you need to stay humble. We're just keeping you humble. <laughs> well, then something happened. You're in high school. Things are going well. Actually, tell us about your high school experience before we get to that story. I went into high school thinking it was like watching the movie She's All That. Right. <laughs> and I thought I was going to walk in and seeing the jocks and the people that were in band and the cheerleaders. And I just pictured it in my mind as a stereotypical high school movie. Meaning in a bad way. Right. I thought, who am I going to fit in with? What crowd am I going to be in? What clique am I going to fall into? And I actually didn't go to my home school, my home high school that I was supposed to. I transferred to where my friends were going from middle school. And so not knowing the people in my neighborhood, we didn't go to the same school. So I went in really nervous. Mm -hmm. But It was way better than I expected. Hmm. Going into high school, I thought I was going to have to say, Hi, I'm Lizzie. I don't have an eating disorder. Do you want to be my friend? And I was just had this monologue prepared for school. And I was shocked because I didn't have a bad experience. Why, Why do you think that was? I don't know. I don't know if it's because of the fact that I had friends going in or... I honestly don't know, or maybe it was just because they were older, but yeah, 
It was great. Then something happened. Yes. Tell I, us about that. I, uh, okay. I'm human. I'm a girl. I have my days where I wake up in the morning and I'm mad because my hair isn't playing nice or my outfit isn't what I wanted it to be. And so I do have those normal human emotions. So high school was a teenage roller coaster, I guess you could say. And I was finally at a point my sophomore year of high school where I was feeling pretty confident about myself. Everything was going really well. And I was at home one afternoon and doing homework and decided to procrastinate and listen to music on YouTube. And I unfortunately found a video that looked really familiar. So I clicked on it and it was a video of me that somebody posted. And it was called The World's Ugliest Woman. And I was shocked. I I felt like somebody, as I was reading the comments on this video, were putting their fists through the computer and like punching me every time I read a new comment. But there were over 4 million views, thousands and thousands of comments, and they were all very, very hateful. Like what? They suggested that I just do the world a favor and put a gun to my head and just in my life. Um, they were giving me other tips on how to kill myself and asking why my parents didn't abort me if I was going to be so ugly. What is that? What's I just can't that, even that fathom, like? like, what? I can't, it baffles me to think of somebody sitting at their computer at home and seeing this video, which was eight seconds and had no sound, and it said on the video that I was 11 years old at the time. And I still, to this day, can't picture possibly an adult person, who knows what age they are, sitting at home and writing these awful things, like... What in their life is wrong that's making them have to tell someone to kill themselves to make themselves feel better? But how did you get to that point? I mean, were you already there with that belief system of what's going on in their life? No. To be, no. So no. your initial reaction is? I want to get back at them. Okay. And I want to tell them off. And I was ready to really um, reply back to every single comment and... I don't even know what I was going to tell them, but I was going to tell them off. Basically, that was my plan. And luckily, I just kind of took some time and I thought about it. And I realized I would just be sinking down to their level. And all it would be is just commenting back and forth to each other and be dumb. I mean, you're kind of brushing over this pretty lightly here. I mean, I, I'm, you're talking 4 million people have watched this. Thousands of people have commented in such a horrible, horrific uh, violent way, so to speak. I remember one posting about me, you know, that I have a, a fake eye and somebody saying something that he's an alien. And it was one posting. <laughs> and I was just, and I'm a grown man. I was, I was like, I lost sleep over it. I was like, how dare they? They don't know me. But it was one person and I'm a grown man. Yeah. You had thousands and, and millions of views and you're a teenager dealing with this. I think because of the fact I grew up knowing that people were staring at me. I grew up having people whisper about me and seeing that. And I had done a few TV shows or like random talk shows when I was younger telling my story. And before I agreed to do any of that, my parents sat me down and they said, we're going to support whatever you want to do, but you have to be prepared because with the good comes the bad. And there are going to be people who 
don't accept you and they might say mean things to you. And if you're willing to take that risk, that's in your hands. And so after finding the video, I think I was, the fact that I was aware of it and knew that with the good came the bad, it made it a little, I don't want to say easier to deal with it, but I think that's why I had a different approach to it. So what was the good? So you, I heard you say that you did a, a TV show, a talk show when you were 11 years old, mm-hmm. and it was a, a talk show about uh, kids with rare syndromes. Right. And so you went on as an education point of yeah. view to educate people and create awareness. and Right. And right. I think the title of the show was um, I'm Only a Kid, Please Don't Stare. And it was a lot of... Well, that's kind of an odd... <laughs> I know. I wasn't Even aware that. that that was going to be the title. But right. it was a lot of little kids who had different syndromes, like progeria and other things that weren't really well known. And so that's how I like started getting my story out there, I guess. So when you were doing those shows as a little kid, what was the good that came out of it? Traveling. Okay. <laughs> I got to go to New York. Okay, all right. (laughs) Um, But I think it was good because it kind of started teaching me how to be confident, and it opened the door to me being open to telling people my story. Okay. So obviously at some point you developed kind of a a script, so to speak, a a canned response when people ask you if they have the courage. And by the way, I want to get into that you know, later mm-hmm. on, the kind of response you would want people to have or, mm-hmm. or invite people have, give people permission that, you know, you can ask. Yeah. But you, at some point, you had to create, like, a standard response for that, correct? Yeah, I think I never sat down and planned it. I think it just kind of happened over the years to where I was used to saying the same thing over and over, and it just became the automatic answer. And did it work? Was it an answer that drew people in, or was it an answer designed to push people away? Does that make sense? Yeah, I would say, I don't know, maybe in the middle, because it depended on me saying, this is what I have, but I'm normal, if the person accepted it or still wasn't able to get past my physical features. Okay. Wow. So what happened after this? You see this video, you read thousands of of hateful, hateful comments uh, from nameless, faceless, you know, strangers. Right. What happened after that? I was upset for myself. Because you had a choice at that point. You you really could have gone either way. Right. I was at first devastated um, because it was about me, but I think what really, really took it over the edge was when I was reading comments and they were talking about my family. And I decided to put myself out there. It was my choice, not theirs. And so I was more offended and angry and upset that they were talking about my family. And I felt bad because, again, I was the one who made this decision to do this, not them. And so I felt guilty in a way, even though I had no control over it that they were saying bad things about my parents. And I knew once I told them about the video that they were going to be really upset. I didn't know how they were going to take it. And I was more worried about their feelings Hmm. than mine. Wow. So how did they respond? My mom was really upset. Um, I think she was kind of in shock about it. But at the same time, she was not wanting me to see how upset she was. 
and both of my parents said we're going to do whatever we can to get it taken down and at the time I was really kind of new to YouTube I didn't know how it worked or how to get a video taken down and so we saw like a contact thing on the bottom and tried to report it and it didn't do anything so how long was it up or do you even know years really a lot yeah oh I don't even know how many but it was a long time and a lot of people started multiplying the video right so it was in different languages it was posted from so many different countries and it got to a point where it's like i can't even there won't be a point to take one down if there's so many out there so did your parents rule of you get to cry once over this apply to this situation (laughs) yeah it did (laughs) actually even though it's like a huge ordeal they still stuck with it and I think it's good because I think finding something as bad as that could have put me into, easily put me into a huge depression. Mm-hmm. And it didn't. Please, as a teenager, your breaking nail can put you into a huge depression, you know? And I mean, <laughs> yeah. I just can't imagine. Yeah. You know, trying to fit in and find your way, and, and yet you have, uh, again, nameless and faceless so called enemies out there. Right. It's hard I mean, enough to know who your friend is. I, without a doubt, credit my parents. For how I take a lot of things in life, but it's not just my parents. It's my extended family and our family from church and all the people who were around me growing up because they all treated me so normally. Mm -hmm. Nobody treated me differently or special or anything like that to make me feel like I wasn't like everybody else. And so having that love and support and constant encouragement is what kept my chin up, I guess you could say. I have a feeling that when you speak, you know, first of all, you have immediate credibility when you stand on a stage because people can immediately see, okay, there's a story here. And the fact that she has the courage to stand on the stage, I better shut up and listen, okay, (laughs) which I think is wonderful. So I'm sure one-on-one people come up and they share their stories. Yes. And uh, what's the advice that you give to people? How do they overcome something like that and and still believe in themselves and dust that off and somehow let it go i mean let it go maybe letting it go would mean oh i can delete and pull down the youtube video you didn't even have that option it was still going on yeah i think my biggest advice and it's something that i had to learn it was a process that i had to learn on my own and kind of figure out and that was realizing that if i wasn't happy in my own skin, if I wasn't owning my character and my personality and having the values that I had growing up, nothing else would be right in my life. I don't know how to explain it. It's kind of like if I wasn't happy with who I am, if I wasn't confident in who I am, then I wouldn't be able to be happy when I go to school and I would feel like a hypocrite standing in front of audiences and saying, I'm so proud of who I am. Be yourself, be confident, and I didn't truly believe it. So I had to get to a point where I truly, truly believed that I was confident, I was happy, and I knew that I had a purpose. So what was the good that came out of that? Like, what were the convictions that you then established for yourself? It's like, okay, they're not going to win. I'm going to use this and turn this around. What came out of that? Once I started building that foundation to kind of start everything else in my life, it took a long time to get to that point and for me to be able to say, okay, I'm happy with who I am, 
I'm ready to move on with my life. These are the things that I want to accomplish. These are my goals. These are my dreams. This is what I plan to do with my life. And so I think the good that came out of it was having everything in my life fall into place. What do you mean, what's a long time? A long time, you saw the YouTube video, you read the thousands of comments. It took a week, it took a year, it took five years. What was a long time? I think it's actually still happening. I wouldn't even say that it was a certain time because there are still days where I see comments online or I see I get a hateful message and I feel awful and I start thinking, are they right? Like, I don't know. I just kind of, I'm a girl. I'm hormonal. I have so many emotions. So I think that kind of plays a factor in whether I can believe that it's going to be okay or whether I can feel sad for the day. Because there are days where I don't want to deal with people staring at me. I just want to go and enjoy myself and have a normal life. Mm -hmm. And that's when I have to think, okay, stop, realize what you do have, be grateful for it, and start thinking about the positive again. But you have to do that every single day. Not every day. Some days I wake up and I'm like, oh, it's going to be a good day. My life is great. But then you go outside and people are staring, though. Right. But now I don't know if people are staring at me because I look different and they're curious or if they're staring at me because they recognize me. And so it's kind of different. And I think one of my favorite stories to share um, is I, when I was younger, I think I was in middle school, I went to the movies with my parents, and we were in line to get popcorn. And I had saw a group of teenagers standing to our left, and they were all staring at me and whispering and saying things. And I avoid confrontation at all costs possible. And so I ignored it, and my parents saw them, and they wanted to go tell them something, and I begged them not to. I didn't want to be embarrassed and my dad went up said something to them came back and I was like what did you say and he's like I told them you're my daughter your name is Lizzie and that it's okay we forgive them and we'll keep them in our prayers because we don't know their situation but he let them know that staring at someone who's different isn't the nicest thing and came back and told me that you have to pray for them. You can't be mad at them because I can't judge them. I can't be angry at them. And that always stuck with me. You were how old when that happened? I want to say I was maybe 13 or 14. Wow. So dad's not there anymore necessarily to go up to those groups of people who are staring, but that stuck with you. That mm-hmm. stayed with you. It was a good lesson because I, I think it was a good lesson in forgiveness because I saw that he forgave them right away, and he was the perfect example, like a perfect time to teach me this lesson when he never thought I would remember it. And when I had wrote about it in my book and he read it, he was like, I didn't even know that that's something that was a big part of your life. It could have easily gone the other way. I'm, I'm a new dad with an 18-month-old daughter, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm going to end up in jail one day. <laughs> you know, some little kid's going to say the wrong thing to my daughter, and I'm going to pounce on him. You know what I mean? I, so I just can't imagine. I mean, what a, what a great lesson from your dad that 
it so easily could have been you little brats get the heck out of here right you know i will track you down i know where you live leave my daughter alone <laughs> yeah and uh, my now that my brother and sister are older and they have they've always been very protective of me when we're out in public and they don't ever want me to see when people are staring at me and i think this is where one of the benefits of being visually impaired comes into play because <laughs> i can't see them staring at me and my brother and sister could see it happening but they'll just kind of stand in front of me mm-hmm. or stand on the side of me to where the people can't like see them and they kind of make eye contact with them and let them know i see that you're staring at her I heard you say uh, yesterday that you turned your tears into anger and then into determination. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I cried, of course, after I saw the YouTube video. And then I started getting really angry because I was picturing in my mind people sitting behind their computer um, saying these awful things. And then I started realizing that the people that were putting all of these comments were all anonymous. None of them had a picture of themselves um, on their channel. And I thought, you know what? I have my picture on here. I'm putting out videos with me talking. I'm proud of myself. Mm. They're being cowards and they're hiding and they are trying to be tough guy behind the computer. Mm. And so once I started thinking about that, then I started thinking, I have to win. I have to win because I'm the type of person that if you say I can't do something, I will do everything in my power to prove you wrong and show you that, yes, I can, I can do it. So Jeremy did not do it. So once I pumped myself up, I guess, Mm -hmm. to show them that they weren't going to win, that's where the determination really kicked into full force. And that determination, I heard you say, turned into basically four goals, four focuses for you. What were those? Uh, My four goals were to be a motivational speaker, I wanted to publish a book, I wanted to graduate college, and I wanted to have my own family and my own career. Okay, so so talk about that. I set these goals, and I didn't tell anyone that this was my plan. This is what I wanted to do. I kind of just had it in the back of my mind, and my driving force was this YouTube video. And I started doing whatever I could to try to make these goals happen, and Without even expecting it, everything kind of just happened all at one time. Well, I mean, just that lesson, again, you brush over that, but the fact that there were so many other choices for you. Mm-hmm. You could have, I will become vengeful, I will go into hiding, I will become a hermit, I, could I will get bitter. revenge, I will be bitter, I'll become... I mean, there were so many other options for mm-hmm. you. And what you did was you got very, very clear, not just, oh, I'll overcome this. Oh, I will overcome it as a motivational speaker. <laughs> I will graduate from college. I will publish a book. I will have a family. I'll have a career. I mean, you got, can you talk about that more? Like, where did yeah, that come from? I started thinking, like, okay, I was picturing myself, like, in the future and having all of these things accomplished and me looking back and saying, look at me now. Okay. Look what I did. You didn't win. I did. And... I started realizing that my best revenge, the only way I knew that I could have my revenge against these people was to fight back with my accomplishments and Mm. show them, you're not going to hold me down. You're Mm. not going to define me. Wow. 
So talk about the public speaking. How did that happen for you then? I didn't even know being a motivational speaker existed. Well, then how did that pop into your head as one of the goals? When I was a junior in high school, I think, towards the end of the school year. So junior in high school, you're how old? Like 16, 17. Okay. The assistant principal at our school said that they needed somebody to talk to all of the freshmen, which was 400 freshmen, uh, at the time at my school because they weren't taking a test and they needed an assembly and wanted someone to present. And she just said, would you want to tell your story? And I was really close with her, and so she knew a lot of my background and the struggles that I've had and the things that I was going through, and she was really wanting me to share that. And if she wouldn't have ever had me do that, I there's no way I would be where I am today to have motivational speaking as my passion in my career. But she talked me into it, and my parents said it would be a good idea, and I did it. And I spoke for about an hour, and I was terrified. I was so scared. Half the time, I didn't even look up at the audience. And for some reason, halfway through, I just started talking. Like I was talking to one of my friends and telling them what I've gone through and how I've really had good days and bad days. And I just felt comfortable, which was so bizarre because I've never talked to 400 people. And I did it, and I just became so comfortable, so comfortable. And then when it was over, having everyone come up to me, and they were crying and hugging me, and it was amazing. I will always, always, always remember that day because it changed my life. What was the response? You, know, you said that they were they were hugging and they were crying. What was the response? What were they saying to you? I mean, these new freshmen. and Right. In my mind, they weren't going to be able to relate to me because they don't have my syndrome. Okay. They don't have vision in one eye. They have vision in two. And so I thought me telling them what I go through was going to be pointless because they wouldn't care. But they came up to me and... All of them related at a different point in my speech. Somehow or another, whether it was self-confidence issues, being bullied, being depressed, being happy, trying to figure out who I'm going to be as a person. And they would tell me what they were going through. And I thought, wow, just because they don't have my syndrome doesn't mean they can't relate to me or know what I go through. And it felt good. And I think a lot of the thing that really helped was because I was their age. I wasn't an adult sitting in front of them and saying, don't do this, don't do that, be nice to other people, and they wouldn't listen. Mm -hmm. They could relate to me because I was their age. I was a student at the same school they went to. So after that, that was, okay, I could do this. I could be a motivational speaker. I, I can stand in front of a group of people get through a speech and and have this type of an impact. What was the next step after that then? I went home and I was really just thinking about it and thinking, how can I do more of this? It was kind of like a drug. Mm -hmm. Like, how can I do this more? Because it would give me this like high feeling of just being so happy and so confident and so ready to show people that if I can do this, you can do it too. And I have a passion for computers and designing and making websites and 
working with new software and learning everything I can about it. And that's when I taught myself how to make my own website. Mm -hmm. And I would email people. I had to make a new work email that didn't have, like, the word cheer or baby in it. <laughs> and so I had to change it to be, like, be professional. And I made my website and made my new email address. And I emailed anyone. Anyone. I emailed churches, newspapers, local TV stations, different schools around my area. And I said, my name is Lizzie. This is my story. If you ever need someone to speak for you at an event, let me know. And I did it for about a year, and I started getting responses, wow. and people were wanting me to go speak, and I started thinking, whoa, this is happening a lot faster than I thought it would. Mm. But that's how the whole process began, and I would speak to literally anyone who would listen to me, mm. whether it was two or three people, whether it was 20 people or 50 people, whatever it was. And I did everything I could to teach myself how to be a public speaker. Mm. What do you do? Where do you stand? Do you walk around? Do you sit down? Do you read from notes? Should you have a PowerPoint? And I just used every event as a learning tool to teach myself how to become a speaker. Wow. You know, I like that lesson because I think, you know, people will see a, a speaker. They see thousands of people stand at their feet and give them a standing ovation. And they're like, wow, I want that. I want to be able to do that. And so they'll often ask me, how do you do that? How do you become you know, a motivational speaker? I'm like, well, do you have three friends? Are you a motivational speaker to them? Meaning, do you have words of encouragement that make their day easier, yeah. that, that help them get up when they fall down? Because if you can't do it with those three friends, how are you going to do it with the 3,000? So. Wow, that is smart. No. I didn't think about it that way. So let's talk about your books. Your first book is called uh, Lizzie Beautiful. Right, And I'm just going to yes. read here what it says. Lizzie Velasquez opens her soul and shares her remarkable story, giving us an inspiring testimony. She reveals intimate details about her struggles living in a society that places great emphasis on outer appearance. Now, part of that book, you talk about that your mother had wrote you letters when you were a, a child. Can you share that story with us? Yeah, I had no clue about these letters and she gave them to me in my suitcase one weekend when I went back to my dorm. And in college. You're yeah, in college was in now, college. so you're how old at this age? Um, probably like 18, 19 years old. Okay. And I opened it, and I had no clue what it was. I thought it was something that accidentally got in my bag. And I opened it, and it was a bunch of composition notebooks. And I still thought, what in the world is this? And I recognized my mom's handwriting. And I started re reading it, and the first letter dated March 14th, 1989, the day after I was born. Wow. And all of the letters started, Dear Lizzie. And oh she documented everything until I was in high school. In different days, she would miss days sometimes. There would be like a little gap in time. But she was so descriptive <laughs> with you everything. You had no idea she was no doing idea. this. Your no whole 18 clue. years of life, you had no idea your no, mom was I've doing this. No, I never, I never saw her write. And in the letter, she explained that the only time she would write was when I was asleep. Wow. Or at, like, late at night, she would stay up late and writing these letters for me. And the one that definitely stuck out the most was a letter that said, you have no idea that I'm writing these letters. 
I don't know when I'm going to give them to you, but I hope that when I do, you will be reading them in your college dorm room. And there you were. And there I was. What was the impact that these letters, I mean, it wasn't just a, a journal of here's what happened today. I mean, it was obviously filled with advice and, and history of, of you and what's going on. I mean, what was it so wonderful that had this impact on you? I think the fact that just knowing that my mom was writing these letters to me for so long and reading them, I could hear her voice in my head and I could picture what she was doing at the time of the letters. And I think it was just something that made me feel so close to my mom. Hmm. And I have a very like loving and affectionate family, but all the stuff that my mom wrote, like her worries and her concerns and things like that when I would get sick, I never knew. And so reading that made me think, wow, like... She struggled, too. Yeah, it wasn't just your journey too. of what you were dealing with, yeah. this syndrome. Your mom and dad struggled, too. Yeah, and she would wow. write how they would be really worried, but they would always stay strong for me. And they never wanted me to see if they were worried or scared or upset. And they just always wanted me to have a positive outlook on things. So then you have a, a second book called Be Beautiful, Be You. And again, reading what this was online about this book... Uh, uh, Lizzie, age 23, whose positive outlook, despite having a rare condition, made her a sought-after motivational speaker, hopes her book, Be Beautiful, Be You, will inspire young adults who struggle with self-image and self-esteem. Can, can you name one young adult who does not struggle with self-image and self-esteem? I don't no. know. Okay, yeah. So, jeez, what a tall order. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I wanted, I wrote Lizzie Beautiful with my mom. My mom wrote the first half of the book and I wrote the second half of the book. And it was basically my story from her point of view when I was younger and things I don't remember to me um, starting college and talking about the good days and the bad days and the struggles that I had. And for Be Beautiful, Be You, I was going to be writing it all on my own. And whenever I start doing something, I pour my heart and soul into it. Mm -hmm. It becomes my little baby. And I wanted to show people, okay, these are the struggles that I had in Lizzie Beautiful, but let me tell you how I got through them. And let me help you get through your struggles. And so this book, Be Beautiful, Be You, is an advice book, basically. I tell my story of what... I went through the issue that I had and like how I got through it, the strategies that I did and how they could apply it to their lives as well. So is there something in the book that is like a a common theme when people are one-on-one, you share your story, you create the emotion, people are crying in the audience and then they all stand in line to talk to you (laughs) and you're a total stranger to them, but they will share their most intimate details of what they're struggling with is there a common theme that comes up in what they share with you and then the advice that you give to them which can also be found in this book i think the most common one is self-confidence and being proud of who they are and not letting the bullies get them basically and i shared with them something that i did that was a huge huge help for me and It was called the Love Yourself List. And I decided to write down 
all the things that I liked about myself, okay. whether it was physically or my character or my personality. I wrote them all down in a list, and I taped them to my bathroom mirror. Okay, what's on that list besides the fact that you have cool hair? <laughs> I thought that I was funny and that... I have a good taste in food. I was the most random things. But I was a good listener. I love giving advice to my friends. I love helping other people and things like that. And I put the list where I would see it every single day. So it was where on your bathroom mirror you Yeah, said? my bathroom okay. mirror. And I put it there so I can see it. And finally, my goal was to get to a point where I didn't just read those things, but I believed them. And it was kind of a tool that helped me feel confident about myself and know that, okay, if something bad is going to happen, if I get to a situation where I feel down about myself or I do one of the biggest things that I think is an issue for anyone at any age, and that's comparing yourself to somebody else. As soon as I would see someone who, like a girl that was more popular than me or who was really pretty, and I would start thinking, she's better than me. I would stop myself, and I would remind myself of my list and automatically stop the negative thoughts and start the positive thoughts. And so I tell people, make the list. Write down everything you like about yourself. And a lot of people say, well, I don't like anything about myself. I don't have anything to write. And I tell them, go to someone that you're close to a relative, a family member, a student, anyone, and say, what do you like about me? Hmm. Great advice. And have that start your list and go from there. I like what you said that maybe in the beginning you were just reading it, but then you had to get to the point where you started to believe it too. Right, because a lot of times people could tell you things and you're like, yeah, okay, sure, and it's in one year and out the other. And it doesn't stick and you don't learn anything from it. But until you really, really believe it, and stand firm in it, then that's when it starts working. I'm always amazed at how people can't even take a compliment. You look great today. No, I don't. This old thing. Not just, you know? <laughs> yeah. You, know, you look great. Well, I yeah, but I put on 10 pounds. Shut up and just say thank you. Well, there's some say people. thank you. Take it in. <laughs> We're like, I think they say that so that they'll get more compliments. Oh, so people will be like, no, really, you do look amazing. Huh. So in the second book, you're giving them advice on how to be unique, advice on how to make and keep good friends, how to deal with bullying and negativity. I mean, there's a lot of pretty phenomenal things in here. And I don't know who you felt like your target audience was, whether you felt like it was just teenagers, but I'm you know, thinking of a whole bunch of 50-year-old adults who could really... You know, use this book. And I, I, and I mean that yeah. in a very loving way, you know, because right. you want people to see, come on, I see it. Why don't you see it? Right. I definitely learned that after the book came out because I started getting a lot of emails from my website, from people who were reading the book and then emailing me and saying, I'm a grandmother of five kids and this inspired me so much and I showed it to them and I've heard from people of all ages who have been influenced by it or have had help with it. And even sometimes I get emails from teachers and they say their whole class, they're reading it as a class together and they're learning about it. And I just think, oh my gosh, like, it's wild. It's crazy to me to think that when I was in elementary school, 
it was totally different. Never in my wildest dreams would I think a class would one day be reading something that I wrote. So what is your response to? Because it's all around us. It's in billboards. It's in magazines. It's in entertainment shows, walking the red carpet, where there's just such an emphasis on how you're supposed to look in order to be accepted or to be deemed this is a beautiful mm-hmm. person. What's your response to that? I definitely learned at the beginning stages of working on Be Beautiful, Be You. One of my editors had said, they just sent me an email one day and they said, how do you define beauty? And Jeez, I thought, wow, no one's ever asked me that before. And I've never really thought about it. And then I kept thinking, how does anyone define beauty? I feel like everyone has their own version of what is beautiful. And there's a negative version and there's a positive version. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone will always have their own version of what beauty is. And unfortunately, the biggest influence on that is models who have to be super small or Kardashians who are gorgeous and have all this money and that makes them beautiful. And there's so many different versions that you can have of being beautiful. And that just like really got the wheels turning Hmm. in my head. Well, how do you define beauty? You know, I, I mean, not that you know me that well, but anybody who does know me, I, I kind of get on a soapbox quite a bit about, you know, some of those TV shows or some of the focus that so much emphasis is placed mm-hmm. on that, which is great. You know, find that there's emphasis placed on Hollywood and on celebrity status and model status and all of that. I, I get it that there's a place for it, but what what is really troublesome or what is really sad is a better word for it is cool but then where are the conversations that really matter? Right. Find that you're going to have your conversation about this model or this actress and what they wore and how beautiful they are, et cetera, et cetera. But are you also having the conversations that truly matter? The conversations about the latest research in breast cancer, mm-hmm. the latest news on the victims who are still living in tent cities in Haiti following that horrific earthquake. Are yeah. we talking about that stuff as well? You know, and that's what, you know, people like you, they remind us that, you know, cool that you're focused on that, but how about you focus on this as well? Yeah. How about if you redefined uh, what's valuable, what's beautiful? I think one of the biggest things that I wish people would be aware of or really think about is anyone who is in the entertainment industry or is really famous and people think they're like these almighty gorgeous people and they have plastic surgery to be like them, but in the end, they're just people. They're normal people who, when they go home at night and go to sleep, who are they? How do they treat others? What do they do? Are they just superficial and think they're gorgeous and better than everyone? But just because people know who they are, that doesn't make them any better than anyone else. Doesn't make them more confident or anything. Right. That's something, that's a personal thing you got to figure out on your own. Right. Just because you see them smiling on billboards or magazines or in the movies, doesn't mean they're happy. It's the opposite of what you're trying to teach. The opposite of what what you're trying to teach is just because somebody said, hey, Lizzie, you should feel horrible about yourself, didn't mean that you had to buy into it. Nor does it mean somebody, because you're beautiful, you should feel good about yourself, that you should accept that too. You have to earn that. Yeah, it's something that no one will ever be able to do for you. You have to do it. You have to do it on your own. God, I love that lesson. Yeah. 
That's a hard lesson to learn, but it's a good uh, one. Gosh, that's great. So let me sh- switch gears here a little bit. Um, give us some advice. Rather than just staring or, or turning away because they don't know, they don't want to stare, but they don't want to make you feel bad, but they're curious or they're whatever, give us advice. Uh, what do you want people to do? And this isn't just, I, I ask the same advice for somebody who's in a wheelchair. Do you right. want people to, you know, oh, I didn't see the wheelchair. You know, well, they know they're in a wheelchair. You know, <laughs> so you, didn't, you didn't, you know, surprise them. Hey, you're in a wheelchair. Why? Really? How did I yeah. end up here? I mean, what's the advice? Teach us what to do. Do you want people to come up and say, hey, by the way, you know, I'm so-and-so, very nice to meet you. Can you tell me about what's going on with you? I mean, what do you want people to do? I think I have the simplest answer Good. and I'm thing looking for people for to do. And I think all it takes is to smile and acknowledge me as a human being, not somebody who looks different or who looks out of the ordinary. Don't look at me and smile and make me feel awkward or out of place. Just acknowledge that I'm human and I'm there. Smile at me. If you want to come up and say, hi, how are you? And say, I'm curious about your situation. That's completely fine. And I went to speak about, I think it was a few months ago, I went to Des Moines, Iowa. And for the very first time, I spoke to 100 homeless men. Only men. How'd that happen? Um, How'd that come about? I had went to go speak for an organization called Hope Ministries. Okay. And they have a lot of different organizations inside Hope Ministries. Missions and right, chapters. And, right. Okay. A lot of shelters for family and women who have done prostitution and were on drugs and are turning their lives around. And one of the days while I was there was going to speak to the shelter for men that they run. And I was so nervous. I didn't know what I was going to talk about. That day I had spoke at about three different places in one day. That was my last stop uh, for the day. I was so tired. I didn't even stand up for the speech And I stayed sitting down, and the guy that brought me there said, all you have to do is smile at them and show them that you acknowledge them and you don't think anything less of them because they're at a homeless shelter. That's all they want. That's all they want. And so I started kind of doing my regular speech, and I looked out into the audience, and I thought, wow, I want them to know that I told them, I said, I don't know any of you in here. I don't know your story. I don't know where you've been, but I acknowledge you. I believe in you, and I have hope for you. And as soon as I said that, they all just started crying. They all just had their heads in their hands and were tearing up. That's all it took. That's all it took was just, they don't know who I am. They've never heard my story before. I'm just this little tiny girl from Texas who's sitting in front of them and telling them my story. But the fact that I said, I believe in you, I have hope in you, I know you can get to where you want to be. Wow. That's it. That's all it took. Acknowledgement. You know, it's just, I think it's a basic human need right up Mm -hmm. there with oxygen. You know, Willie Jordan came and spoke the other day and, uh, she runs the Fred Jordan Mission, which is on Skid Row, and they serve a thousand homeless people every mm-hmm. single day. And you know, that's what she said. She said, you know, in my many, many years of being on Skid Row running this mission, never has anybody come up and asked me for a home. Nobody's ever come up and asked me for a car. 
What they come up and ask for is, first of all, just the very basics. Just, you know, just give me food for my kids. Mm-hmm. You know, just give me a warm coat because I'm cold. Yeah. And she says, other than that, what do they want? Acknowledgement. They just yeah. want a hug. They just want to have a conversation with a human being. And that applies to everyone across yeah. the board. Yeah. I think even parents who have kids, like just saying, you are smart. You are a good kid. Mm. I believe in you. I know you're going to do things. Mm. Just having someone tell you that can do wonders for anybody wow now i know that you do some work with uh some anti-bullying initiatives and education can you kind of share with us your journey and your experience with that and who you've been working with and what's that all about yeah i i don't want to say luckily but growing up i dealt with a lot of bullying and it was all verbal bullying i was never physically pushed down or heard or anything like that. It was just the name calling in the stairs. And as I got older, I got introduced, sadly, to the world of cyberbullying. And I, my eyes opened up a lot to not even that cyberbullying can come from online, but it could be through text message, through email, through any form of technology to where someone can contact you and make you feel really bad about yourself. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that I've been through both of those situations, when I do go to speak at schools and I say, when I was your age, this is what I went through. And this is what being a bully is. And it's not cool to make somebody feel bad about themselves for you to feel better about yourself. Like, you can't do that. So I've been going to a lot of elementary schools and middle schools and younger kids who kind of just really need to hear that message and need to know that it's not okay to hurt other people. And I go to schools that have the No Place for Hate program. And we it helps because they already have the foundation of knowing and they've talked about it and they have little rules or steps that they have for their classroom if they see someone being bullied. And so that's been a lot of what I've been doing the past few years. So what is No Place for Hate? No Place for Hate is an organization that schools kind of adopt it depends on i think there's different requirements i'm not too sure of like how your school becomes a no place for hate school Mm -hmm. and when they have this program they have a certain curriculum that they follow that is having the little steps and rules and things that they see people who are being bullied and they have the reading materials and all the things that come along with teaching younger kids about bullying Mm -hmm. and so no place for hate is something that is not only something that the teachers kind of tell them, but it's a lesson. Wow. Now, you actually have spoken at anti-bullying conferences. Can you share with us about what that's about? Yeah, I was asked to speak at a conference called Stand Up to Bullying in Boston this past year. And the guy that is leading it emailed me and said, we are inviting all of these schools and We really think it would be great to have you here on that day and speak for 10 minutes. And I went and they had a full day of anti-bullying activities with their schools and coming up with new organizations for their schools to have like a club of anti-bullying. And so I went to speak at this event and It was so incredible because there's over 5,000 students there and all of them were so pumped about taking a stand against bullying. 
And it was so cool to see their passion and their drive and their readiness to show people that we have to put a stop to this. Mm. And I think bullying is something that will forever be a problem. It's never just going to end or stop. But if you do one thing to make a difference, it's kind of like the start. Do you know the starfish story? Oh, I love the starfish story, but tell it's it. It's just like that. There was a little boy who was putting a starfish back in the ocean. And someone said, why are you doing that? It's one. There's so many. And the little boy said, but it's one, and it made a difference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you, you get me, and I, with your stories and with your, your passion and zealousness that you have, if that's a word, if it's not. I get really excited when I talk about it. As you should. You know, it's, it's again, you have instant credibility when you stand on the stage because I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when you stand on the stage, basically what you're saying to the audience is, is uh, look at me, I could easily be your target Yep. as a bully. Right. And I think showing them that, instead of just saying, oh, bullying's bad, but not doing anything right. and not having the actions to show that, hello, I was bullied. A lot of people told me to just end my life, but I'm not. I'm being proud of who I am, and I'm sharing my story. And you don't have to have a syndrome. You don't have to be in a wheelchair. You don't have to have a visual impairment to make a difference or to relate to people. No matter where you come from, no matter what your background is, what your race is, you can take a stand and you can be the role model that other people look up to. It's in your hands. It's simple. You don't have to have a golden ticket to being someone famous. You can do it no matter who you are. Mm. Wow. If there were, all of a sudden, you got a phone call from your doctor and said, oh, my gosh, we found the cure. Take this magic pill. This will all be gone. How would you respond? I would say, oh, I'm so glad you found that, but no thank you. Why? <laughs> Try someone else. If you would have asked me that question when I was 12 years old, I would say yes. I would do whatever I could to raise money for doctors to do research to invent this magic cure. I would do whatever I could to change it because I was so desperate to just look like everybody else. And it took me so many years to be able to feel confident in who I am that I would never change it. And again, I would feel like such a hypocrite standing in front of so many people and saying, I'm proud of who I am, be proud of who you are, being unique is a good thing. And then I take some pill or surgery to make me look like everybody else. It just kind of defeats the purpose. <laughs> Lizzie, you're incredible. Thanks. I can't believe it's been over an hour already. You speak so well. Thank and I, you. And I can see why you're in demand and why your books are doing so well. First of all, before I ask you for a final comment, how do people find you? Um, you can go to my website. It's aboutlizzie.com. And so it's, it's about Lizzie. Oh, no, no. Oh. About, like, it's okay. comma, aboutlizzie.com. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And, and that has the links to all my social media, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, okay. blog, all that stuff. So do you have a final message for our listeners? I think just be yourself. Be yourself. Own who you are. Be proud of who you are. And once you are, everything else will fall into place. Just so simple. Yep. Well, again, thank you for being here. You're, thank I, you. I knew this would go so well. Thanks. After, again, sitting in your audience yesterday. Mm -hmm. 
and just the impact that you had on just a short period of time. I mean, you had them laughing. <laughs> you immediately, through your humor, put people at ease and made them comfortable to hear your story and to hear、yeah. your advice, and、uh, you changed some lives. That's my goal. <laughs> keep, keep doing that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Lizzie. Thank you.